Thank you, Father, for our opportunity to lift up each other in prayer. That you give us this opportunity to speak knowing you're hearing us. That your word confirms, Father, that you hear the prayers of your children. And that you know even before we speak what is on our minds. Things that you have told us, Father, to encourage us so that we might know that as we sit quietly thinking to ourselves the needs we have and speaking out loud in groups as we pray together that we can have confidence to know these words don't stop at these walls and that the creator of all things can hear us and chooses to incline his ear toward our concerns. And Father, we thank you for the chance to lift up the ones we have and others that may not have been mentioned. And and I thank you, Father, for the book of Galatians, for the way it reminds us of the things that are most important, Father, of our respect for the authority you vested in the men you called as apostles, for the deliverance of the word that they gave us in obedience to that calling, for the message of the gospel, for its importance in its simplicity, and for its power, Father. We thank you for the men like Paul who made such a point in their lives to emphasize the truth with courage in the face of opposition. Let us study it tonight, Father, with a renewed concern in our own day to be faithful to the truth and to have courage to speak it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as a matter of quick review, in that first chapter we studied last week in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, We noted that he began with a defense of his apostolic authority, and that was one of the main goals he had in writing this letter. Paul's teaching of the gospel in his day had differed dramatically from that of the false teachers who came alongside or came after him and tried to distort it. Paul taught a gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, while the false teachers that came alongside were teaching that the gospel of salvation required works of the law. So if you were a Christian in Galatia, The issue really came down to a question of credibility. That is, who do you believe? Did you believe the truth spoken by Paul, or did you believe the message delivered by the Judaizers? When Paul had been with the Galatians, he gave his testimony, and he must have demonstrated his power as an apostle. But now that he was gone and living elsewhere in Ephesus, the false teachers came in after and began to teach in his absence things that Paul said disturbed the church and confused them. And those teachers were citing Paul's sudden appearance on the scene as an apostle years after Jesus' death and resurrection as cause to doubt his authority and to doubt his message. And they pointed to his prior life as a persecutor in the church as reason to doubt his sincerity. And by those things, they attempted to discredit not only his authority and his teaching, but the gospel message itself, suggesting that he was not true and neither was his message. Naturally, then, before Paul could defend the proper view of the gospel, he had to defend his own authority so that what he said mattered to who he was speaking to. And in chapter one, that's what we learn. Paul recounting how he had come to faith and into his office based on the calling God gave him. He emphasized that all that he was and all that he had to deliver was not the product of men, nor even of the apostles themselves. He emphasized that he received what he did from Christ Directly, his knowledge of the scripture, his understanding of the mysteries of God and the preaching of the gospel were all things that came to him, not by the agency of men, but by Christ alone. That was the beginning of Paul's defense of his authority. And so as we leave chapter one and as we enter chapter two, Paul is still in that process of defending his apostolic authority. But his focus is now shifting while in chapter one, 
he defended the source of his apostolic office and the source of his knowledge. Now, in chapter two, he defends the content of his message. So the central disagreement between the false teachers and Paul was over the question of Jewish prominence in God's plan of salvation. The Jewish false teachers were saying that the fact that Israel was prominent in God's plan of salvation meant that all must become Jewish before any could be saved. Paul was calling himself the apostle to the Gentiles, a man called to bring the gospel to the world outside Israel. And he acknowledged the gospel must go to the Jew first, even despite his calling. And so as he went outward, he would go to synagogues first. So even Paul seemed to support the notion or could be claimed to support the notion that the gospel was for the Jew rather than for the Gentile. But Paul understood God's plan was to move the gospel outward from Jerusalem into the world and to do so through the agency of Israel, which is always God's plan, that the word and that the Messiah and that the gospel message would always come from Israel, but go out into the world. As Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter four, salvation is of the Jews. It is a product of the Jewish nation for the benefit of the world through the covenants God made. But the Judaizers took that truth, the centrality of Israel and God's plan for salvation, and they went a step too far in holding that God only saves Jews. And therefore, the premise that you must first become Jewish so that then you can receive the Jewish Messiah. That was the essence of their disagreement. So Paul, in chapter two, defends his version of the gospel, which was that God is at work saving Gentiles as Gentiles in that it does not require Gentiles live like Jews to receive God's mercy. The Jewish lifestyle saved no one in the first place, not even a Jew. And so it had no benefit for the Gentile either. And to demonstrate that his gospel was the true gospel, Paul is going to use chapter two to point to his interactions with the foremost Jewish apostle in the church, that being Peter, of course, and along with him, James and John. And in these interactions, Paul is going to demonstrate that if these men agree with Paul's version of the gospel, then surely Paul's version of the gospel is the gospel. So we'll go there now, chapter two, beginning in verses one through five. He says, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So Paul says there were 14 years that passed between what we read in chapter one and now what we're reading in chapter two. And the thing we read in chapter one was Paul's visit to Jerusalem to see the apostles the first time. And now, 14 years later, is his second visit to Jerusalem. That's a remarkably long time between visits, especially for a Jew like Paul. That interval all by itself tells us something about Paul's attitude concerning believers keeping the law. Every Jewish male was expected to make trips annually to worship in Jewish festivals in Jerusalem. But now, having come to faith in Christ and commissioned to preach to Gentiles, Paul evidently saw no reason for himself to continue going down and visiting the temple according to Jewish custom. That change in behavior 
all by itself supports Paul's argument that a life of Judaism under the law was no longer required for the believer. Just that fact alone, that Paul being Paul would stop going to Jerusalem for 14 years. That begs a new question. And why did Paul come to Jerusalem here and now? Why go back at all? Why on this occasion? Well, it is for the occasion of the Council of Jerusalem, which you can read about in Acts 15. Paul was living in Antioch, Assyria at this point in time, ministering there with Barnabas in his hometown. This is Paul's first location of ministry. And one of Paul's converts while he's in Antioch is a man named Titus. And in Acts 15, I'm going to read a section of it for us tonight. Here's what we read about Paul's visit to Jerusalem. I'll start with verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, in the same way they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So that's not the whole chapter, but you get certainly the sense of what was going on in in that meeting in Jerusalem. Notice first, Paul's visit was prompted, we're told, by men who were in Antioch, teaching that Gentiles must be Jewish, must be circumcised, prior to being saved. So that teaching was what prompted the arguments with Paul and Barnabas against these men, which then led to the church to say, why don't you guys go down to Jerusalem and work this out? That teaching was coming from false teachers, maybe from misinformed believers like these Pharisees we see speaking here at the council. But in either case, it's equally damaging. And Paul is sent with Barnabas to Jerusalem to confer with the leaders of the Jewish church. Their hope was that there'd be a common understanding emerge from this council, which would then guide both Jewish and Gentile churches everywhere on the truth of what the gospel was and what it required. And as we see in this discourse, Peter agreed with what Paul and Barnabas were holding, that the Jewish requirements of the law were not requirements for believers, especially not for Gentile believers. In fact, Peter says, our own fathers couldn't bear this yoke successfully. We couldn't even do it successfully. For a Jew to think they were ever keeping the law was folly. The best they ever really accomplished was to try and fail repeatedly. So the point of all of this was to show the Jewish church that God was in fact bringing Gentiles to faith. And if the Lord is working that way, then it would obviously stand to reason 
that the Jewish leaders and the Jewish members of the church in Jerusalem and elsewhere needed to acknowledge that and to accept it despite their natural prejudices against Gentiles. That was a real turning point in the church, and it was a difficult thing. And we know from Acts as well that Peter himself had difficulty accepting that the law was being set aside, having been fulfilled. So now, moving back to Galatians, Paul says in verse 2 that he received a vision that confirmed for him the need to go down to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know what the vision was or what Paul received, but whatever it was from God, it motivated him to go in combination with the church's request. Now, why does Paul mention the vision here? Even just in passing. I think what Paul is saying to the churches in Galatia is that he only agreed to make the trip to Jerusalem because the Lord made it clear he should go. Otherwise, we can assume he would have stayed in Antioch and continued to teach just as he was called because he was confident in what he taught. That Paul's point is, I didn't go down there because I had something I needed to be made clear to me or because I was unclear on whether I was on the right side or that I was in confusion. I knew the truth and I was teaching the truth and the other guys were wrong. And the only reason I went is because God told me I needed to go. That's not pride. That's confidence in the knowledge of how he received what he received. He knew Jesus had told it to him. He didn't need a man to counter it. But he did want to obey the Lord in this trip because God had some good purpose in it, as we see in Scripture. So Paul has never been dependent on the Jewish apostles for direction or for education. He knew the message, he was certain of it, and he preached it. But because of the vision, he goes. Barnabas, we're told, also goes with Paul because he's a fellow apostle and the church sent them together. But why did Paul take Titus? That's actually one of the key things Paul is mentioning here. He took Titus as a test. Notice Paul says he approached the leaders in private, that is, away from the church body as a whole, He did so to learn what they were teaching. Paul wanted to know if the Jewish leaders, James, John, Peter, if those Jewish leaders were teaching a Jewish church of Jewish believers in Jerusalem the gospel of grace. Paul wanted to know if the Judaizers who had been coming down from Jerusalem and into Antioch were receiving what they had from these men or did they make it up on their own? Paul doesn't know. He spent literally no time with the apostles. He spent only a few days prior to this moment in Jerusalem. So he is going to come in with a test in the form of this man, Titus, and privately ascertain whether these men, these other apostles, are with him or not in preaching the gospel properly. He says he does so to find out that if he has been running in vain, which is to say, have I been working with a message different than the ones given to the rest of the church here in Jerusalem? Paul's not suggesting he was the one in The wrong, he's saying, have I been running, in a sense, against the tide? Have I been working upstream? Have I been working against the the rest of the church? So the question is, will they make Titus get circumcised? If he brings an uncircumcised Jew into this high-level meeting of the senior Jewish leaders of a Jewish church, what will their reaction be? In that society, in Jewish society, normally they wouldn't be in the presence of a man who was uncircumcised, let alone sit at a table with him or invite him into their home or eat with him. It's important to remember that the gospel had only seen its first mass Gentile conversion a few years before the Council of Jerusalem. This idea of Gentiles in the church is a very novel idea. So the church is still largely Jewish, and the thought that God was opening the church of God, the family of God, to Gentiles was not only a new concept, it was an offensive concept for most Jewish believers. Notice he says in verse 5, 
Titus has become a test because of the false brethren, the unbelievers masquerading as believers who had joined the gathering. Notice he says these men were coming in secretly and they were coming in sneaking to spy on the church. This is consistent with what we studied in Jude and what we saw in John's letters, that false teachers join the body in a secret way without announcing themselves. They don't wear T-shirts that say false teacher here. Paul says they entered the church to spy, and they came in to do what? To spy on liberty. They were investigating, or they were searching, to find Jewish Christians who were trying to live outside the constraints of Jewish law. If they found such a person in Antioch, then they were intending to bring that person back under bondage, which would mean usually they'd use peer pressure, intimidation, threats. Somehow, they would try to require compliance with the law. Remember, their interest is in forcing Jewish believers to comply because obviously a Gentile believer wouldn't even bother and the Jews wouldn't care for them in any case. So this was an attempt to hold in the ranks of Jewish believers under the law. Notice Paul says, though, that what they actually observed was Christian liberty. They were observing what liberty looks like. They were observing a lifestyle apart from living under the law. And of course, we know they're false brethren, so they didn't understand liberty. All they could know is legalism. But Paul understood Christian liberty, and he probably understood it perhaps better than any other apostle or any other living human being on earth in this day. So he says he did not yield to these men, not even for an hour. Today we would say not even for a minute. Perhaps that reflects the way our culture operates at a higher pace, right? That's the full context, right? He comes down to approach these apostles because God asked him to. He brought a test in the form of Titus, and he was coming in response to what false teachers were saying up in Antioch and he was concerned, is this sourced out of Jerusalem or not? And in verse three, Paul reports the outcome. He says Titus was not required to be circumcised. He says not even Titus. What he means by that is the seriousness of this test was quite severe because if there were ever a moment when you might expect a Jewish leader to require a Gentile believer to be circumcised, it would have been this moment with this crowd. And not even at this point was Titus asked to be circumcised. They accepted him as he was saved by grace. This event recorded here from what we also see in Acts 15, all by itself, this event contradicted the teaching of the Judaizers, because if the Jewish leaders of the Jerusalem church were willing to to accept an uncircumcised Gentile as a brother in the Lord, then certainly they did not believe that circumcision was required for salvation. That's obvious. And so Paul is citing this whole event in chapter two for the benefit of his family back in Antioch, for his church back in Antioch, so that they would understand that not even the three senior most leaders of the Jewish church expected a Gentile to be circumcised in order to be considered a believer. And that's how they could know definitively that his message lined up with the message of the rest of the apostles, including the leaders of the Jewish church. So this conference produced a very positive outcome for Paul and for the church. And it it validated his message. It validated that grace is the way by which we are saved. It disputed the whole idea of following the law as a condition of salvation. And then Paul goes from there in verse six to explain what happened as he departs Jerusalem. Verse six. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, Seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised 
effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So Paul says that as this council ends, these, these men of high reputation, the apostles in Jerusalem, contributed nothing to Paul's message of the gospel. On the contrary, Paul confirmed that he had been entrusted by Christ with the very same gospel that had been delivered to Peter and the rest of the apostles earlier. Paul's mission was to take that truth to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. Peter was entrusted with it for a different mission, that of taking it to the Jew, to the circumcised. But it's the same message, and they were both in agreement on that message. I love the way he refers to these men as reputed to be of high regard or supposed to be. The reason he's saying that is not to slight them, it's to reflect how little he knew about them. He's having to take on other people's word the importance of these men in the church. Isn't that ironic? Shows you just how distant Paul's ministry was from the rest of the church and the way God started it. James was the leader of the Jewish church, but notice Paul compares himself to Peter. Why not to James? Well, Peter was the great evangelist of the Jewish people in his day, so Paul compares himself to Peter because they share a similar mission as an evangelist. Paul adds that the same Lord who made Peter's ministry successful among the, the stubborn and stiff-necked Jewish crowd was the same God making him successful against an ignorant Gentile crowd. It required equally as much power on God's part to change the hearts of the Jew as it did to change the hearts of the Gentile. So the same message, same God, just different audiences. More importantly, at the end, it says the meeting convinced James, Peter and John that Paul was, in fact, moving in the spirit and delivering the gospel. You know, they knew as little of Paul as he knew of them. But now they can take comfort in knowing that what Paul is preaching is, in fact, the same gospel they've been given. Paul says they are pillars. That's literally the word for tent pole, meaning the tallest tent poles. These men are the three tallest standing men in the early church. Both Peter and John wrote gospels. Peter was effectively the author of Mark's gospel. And you see James, of course, as the leader in the church and writing a letter as well. Now they shake hands. The right hand of fellowship is a way of saying they shake hands. They agree now that they are in fellowship and in partnership with this ministry. There is nothing else between them. They are in full fellowship. The only thing they ask, he says, is that Paul remember the poor Jewish believers who suffered in Jerusalem. This is kind of funny because of what it suggests they thought Paul was going to go do. Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem were ill-treated. They had little to show for their labors. They were ostracized by Jewish families. They were set apart by the rest of their brethren. They were considered traitors in much the same way that a tax collector would be. So a Jewish believer in the city was completely dependent on support from other churches in the diaspora. They had virtually no way to make their own living. And you see this reflected in Paul's focus in appeals to churches in the diaspora or in Macedonia, in Corinth, to support their brethren back in Jerusalem. He was constantly taking money back to them from his travels in his missionary journeys. And he did so because they depended so heavily on it. Letting the poor in Jerusalem go without their needs met was the furthest thing from Paul's mind. He says in other letters, he was zealous for his countrymen. He wanted to see them converted and he wanted to support them. But the Jewish leaders in the church had concerns that if Paul was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles 
and focused on preaching a message to the Gentiles that it might mean he's turning his back on Judaism entirely and on the Jewish church as if there would be two churches out there. One Paul created and one the apostles created. So they say, just don't forget us back here and the needs of the church here. Let's work these two worlds together. And Paul said, well, of course. And now as we go deeper into this chapter, he's going to take a step further. He's going to illustrate that his authority and his leadership role is equal to even the most prominent apostle in the church. Verse 11. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So after persecution broke out in the church in Jerusalem, Peter could no longer stay there. You learn that in the book of Acts. And the place Peter works his way to is Antioch. So he settles down in Antioch, having left Jerusalem. And he's there probably because Paul's there, and he knows there's a church there that he can be a part of. The church in Antioch was a lot like most churches in that day. They were mostly Jew, but they were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. So when Peter arrives, he's immediately confronted with something that he rarely, if ever, had to face back in Jerusalem. That is, a church of mixed culture, of both Jew and Gentile in the same gathering. Now, Paul now, in chapter 2, at verse 11, he begins to relate this story of what happened when Peter came up. And it's a story of Peter's hypocrisy. Initially, Paul says that Peter, as he began to live and work in Antioch with the church, he would simply live, eat, and socialize with the Gentiles with no concerns. He, he was free in his fellowship with Gentiles within that church. For that was the pattern of behavior that he found when he arrived. For that was the teaching Paul had given. For that was the way it should be. That reference to eating, by the way, is likely one that includes the eating of the communion meal. We're talking about the Lord's Supper being done as a community eating together. So Peter knew grace, just as Paul knew it. They both taught it, and they both agreed that there were no barriers now between Jew and Greek, having been torn down by Christ's sacrifice and the putting of the end to the law. So they're all enjoying each other's company. But then there comes this day when a delegation of leaders sent by James from Jerusalem comes into Antioch. So James is not in the group, but he sends a group of leaders up from his church to go visit Paul and Peter in Antioch, perhaps just to check on Peter, perhaps just to confer, who knows. But whatever the occasion was, these prominent men, they're Jewish because they're coming from the Jewish church, they're Jewish leaders. And when they arrive, they begin, these leaders begin to practice segregation. They don't come with the same understanding of grace for some reason. And so they set up shop inside the church as a little island. The Jewish leaders, as Paul calls them, party of circumcision, sets up shop inside this church. And we might assume this is the moment that Paul's referring to. But when there was communion distributed within the church, instead of all mixing together and enjoying that meal together, these Jewish leaders segregated themselves to avoid eating with Gentiles. And as that happens, Peter fears this group and their influence. So he stops eating with the Gentiles and joins the Jewish crowd. And sits with them, seeking their approval by his actions. We can wonder what Peter would have feared from these men, being an apostle. But actually, this pattern is sadly consistent with Peter's entire testimony in Scripture. He is well known as a man who succumbs to pressure, unfortunately. 
Paul says this behavior on Peter's part was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is acting in ways contrary to one's stated belief or conviction. Acting in a way contrary to what you say you believe. So Peter held a conviction that grace permitted the breaking down of the barrier between Jew and Gentile. That was his belief, his conviction. And that barrier, as Paul himself says, is the law. Once the law is removed, the law was set up to create a fence around Israel in the world. It made Israel set apart by its requirements. But with the law having been fulfilled in Christ, that barrier is removed. Now there's no necessity for Jews and Gentiles to be seen differently in that respect. That barrier is gone. Paul preached this. Peter knew this. Because of Peter's hypocrisy, when, he be, when his behavior was inconsistent with that view, Paul says he drew others away with him in that sense. Not just others, but all the Jews who were in the church at Antioch, meeting in that church, saw the apostle Peter make a move that suggested very clearly what he thought should be true for all Jews. And of course, in obedience to their leader, they moved over with him. Even Barnabas, we're told. The man who accompanied Paul down in conflict against the Judaizers has joined the Judaizers. What a powerful reminder of the responsibility to model behavior in keeping with doctrine. When we lead lives different than our teaching or our beliefs, we are potentially guilty of leading others into sin. Of setting up stumbling blocks, as the scripture would call them. And that's what Peter does here. That's why we say sin has consequences and not always limited to the one who commits it. So why does Paul choose to relate this embarrassing story about Peter? You might even consider this to be gossip. Well, the answer to that is no, because Paul's relating an account without intent to shame Peter or hurt Peter. Paul's point is much more important than that, and it's entirely appropriate. He wants to use this example to discredit the Judaizers. His point in this is to discredit the Judaizers, not Peter. And to, at the same time to demonstrate Paul's authority stands toe to toe with any other apostle in the church. Paul is relating this because Peter was the most popular apostle among the Judaizers. If you had gone into the bedroom of a young Judaizer, they had posters of Peter on their wall. OK. <laughs> Peter was the poster child for the Judaizers of the Jewish apostle living a Jewish life. Now, I don't suggest that Peter was trying to encourage that, but he certainly didn't do much to discourage it. And I have to believe this isn't the first time he's done this, right? So if we take for granted that he had a pattern of doing this sort of thing, of lending support through his behavior to the teaching of these men, then it would stand to reason that they would hold him in high regard as their defender of their view, whether or not Peter actually did defend it. They could have used him as their example. And Paul wanted to demonstrate that the Judaizers' favorite patron apostle, so to speak, was wrong in his behavior, and he was able to stand up to him in this moment. Peter's actions in this moment are not proof that the Judaizers had the right view. They are merely proof of Peter's hypocrisy. That's what Paul's point is. More importantly, as I said, Paul had the authority to stand up to him, and he relates how he dealt with Peter's Hypocrisy, verse 14, he says, when I saw that they, meaning all these Jews in the church, were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul chooses to issue a public rebuke 
of Peter. You might wonder why Paul didn't choose to do it in private, for there is some scripture to suggest that would have been the natural first step. I think the answer for why he didn't take that step was twofold. First, Peter and Paul had already conferred privately in Jerusalem and on this very issue. And in that private conference, they had come to an agreement on this very issue. The time for private conference is over. Now we're moving on to public. Secondly, the nature of Peter's offense and the nature of Peter's role as a leader and the effect that it had on the body made this whole thing very public and very damaging. And so I think Paul likely felt the best way to correct the situation was to make a public rebuke so that not only was he dealing with Peter's hypocrisy, but he was also demonstrating to the church as a whole what they should be doing, too. So Paul calls Peter out in front of the entire assembly, perhaps during this communion meal, which is how I like to imagine it, because it's far more dramatic. And Paul gives his passionate defense of grace. Different Bibles see Paul's speech ending at different points. Some would say only verse 14 is what he said. The NASB takes it all the way to the end of the chapter. I think, for what it's worth, the natural reading ends at verse 14. I, I don't see it moving past verse 14. I think that's the point Paul was making. And then from there, Paul simply explains to the readers in Galatia what the effect of his statement was. This is a stinging question, as you can tell. He asked Peter, why you like to live as a Gentile sometimes, but then you go around expecting Gentiles to live like Jews. Now, that's not what Peter was actually preaching. But by his behavior, he was aligning himself with Judaizers who did preach that. And so Paul's message to him is, if you're going to join with them, then you must agree with what they say. How could that be, given what you do apart from when they're here? He's exposing Peter's hypocrisy. Everyone in that church... When they heard those words, remembered Peter's behavior before the leaders of Jerusalem showed up that day. They remembered that he ate freely with them. And now they see his actions pressuring the Jewish brethren in the church to withdraw from the Gentiles. And so on full display, Paul asked Peter, how can you have your matzah and eat it too? You can't have the decision of being with Gentiles when they're around, but feel like you can get the approval of Jews when they're around. That's, that's the definition of hypocrisy. Now, he doesn't explain what happens next. Paul leaves the story there. But we can assume, I think, that his challenge was effective. Or else, why would he mention it in his letter, right? Why would he go to the trouble to relate this story if it hadn't actually been an effective defense? So I suspect it probably changed Peter's actions, if not in the immediate moment, certainly thereafter. Do you wonder what Peter felt when he heard those words spoken by Paul in the midst of that congregation? I think he probably felt like he did after he heard that cock crow the morning of Passover. I think he probably felt the same way he did after Jesus rebuked him in the garden for cutting off the slave's ear. I think he probably felt the same way he did when Jesus called him Satan and told him to get behind him. I could go on. He felt convicted. We don't know how he responded in the moment, but I'm sure the end result among the Jewish believers was a sigh of relief. Because it's important to note that Paul was defending Jewish believers in Antioch. He said so. He said that through this confrontation with Peter, he was defending the grace, the liberty of Jewish believers back in Antioch. They were the ones who were suffering by Peter's hypocrisy. Had it been allowed to continue unchecked, they would have been pressured to return to living under the law, which was a tremendous burden. Seeing Paul stand up working to defend them and to end this hypocrisy must have given them great cheer. They must conclude that Paul didn't want to let Peter rob them of their newly found liberty. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. We need to make that connection. There are some in the church, even now, and I don't know that this has ever fully gone away, 
But there are still, even now, in our very Greek Gentile church, those who want to reimpose a burden of law, Jewish law even, on believers. And ironically, this new movement is directed toward the Gentiles simply because there aren't enough Jewish believers in the church to gain much an audience for this movement. The, the Messianic movement in the church is largely directed at taking Gentiles and making them Jewish, if that were possible. I think there's some romanticism around this whole notion of being Jew and of being under the law and of the ancient things and of the mysterious things and the chanting and the language and the, the rituals and all of that appeals to the flesh and the flesh only. For the spirit in us is not interested in seeing us go back under the law, according to scripture. Thanks be to the Lord, right? Salvation is by faith alone and not by works. And interestingly, the modern messianic movement does recognize and for the most part does agree with that. But they have their own subtle distortion for our day. They believe that all believers are obligated to keep the law as a matter of sanctification. Having come to faith and having been saved by that faith, they now believe that the way we please God is to place ourselves again under a law given to Israel. Now, if this were the correct view, then how would you explain Paul's defense of the Jewish believer here? Because Paul criticizes Peter for moving back under the law, the Jewish law. And his critique is very specific. Peter is leading other Jews into this hypocrisy by returning to restrictions of law and custom. Now, if living under those restrictions was actually a good thing, a requirement for sanctification, something God desired in order to please him for both Jew and Gentile, then Paul would have had no basis for critiquing Peter at this moment, would he? In fact, that critique would have come at an earlier moment when Peter was living like a Gentile. Then Paul would have stood up in front of the crowd and said, how is it you being a Jew and knowing the law are willing to dispense with it and live like a Gentile when you know God wants us to stay under the law so that we can be sanctified? He would have rebuked Peter earlier, <laughs> not at this moment, had the messianic view been correct. Clearly, it was Peter's return to living a Jewish life in any sense, according to law and custom and tradition, that triggered Paul's rebuke. That's what got Paul upset. And that's how we know that today, those who would try to put us again under any kind of law, even under some romanticized version of it, some um, view that we can honor God by remembering his law, is misplaced. Because you honor God by fulfilling his law, not by remembering it, not by trying to keep it, but by keeping it. And the only way by which men keep the law is through the work of Christ who kept it. So by faith, you have been given credit for keeping the entire law. You can't do better than 100%. To continue now in your own flesh, in some misguided effort to continue keeping it, is only to illustrate you can't keep it. And in that, there's no glory. Paul will say that now as we move into chapter 2, verse 15. Paul proceeds to explain to the Galatian church the error of Peter's thinking and of the Judaizers thinking. He says in verse 15, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed... I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So speaking of himself, and by extension, other Jewish believers, Paul says we, speaking of Jewish believers, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. Now, Paul is speaking from the perspective of a believer who has been born a Jew. And to a Jew, the term Gentile and sinner were synonymous. So Paul's not saying that all Gentiles are sinners and all Jews never sin. He's not playing off of that prejudice. What he's simply saying is that Jews were God's people by a covenant of law, while Gentiles were excluded from this relationship by birth because they were not under the law. They did not submit to it and they could not be included, therefore, into the people of God in the sense of before Christ, in the Old Testament view. So Paul is saying we, as Jews, had this position of privilege. Nevertheless, despite our position of privilege in the law, in this covenant of law, we also needed righteousness by faith, for that law did not present us with righteousness or salvation. So in verse 16, Paul gives a succinct presentation of the gospel itself. He says, a man, even a natural born Jew, is not justified by works of law. Now, the word justified in Greek is the word for acquitted, to be declared innocent or righteous. It means to be declared such, not that you actually are in fact, but you have been declared as much. To be declared not guilty of an offense. So we are acquitted, we are justified, not by works of law, Paul says. Said another way, we cannot do anything to earn our acquittal on our judgment day. You cannot keep rules, you cannot perform penance, you cannot make restitution, or sweep your mistakes under the rug in any other way in the hope of a good outcome on the day of your judgment. Sin leaves us convicted, and no work on our part can erase that guilt. And certainly, Jewish attempts to keep the law did nothing in that regard. But what works cannot achieve, Jesus did through his perfect life and his sacrificial death. And so by faith in that sacrifice, Paul says we are justified by that faith. For no flesh, Paul says, meaning no sinful man, can be justified through works of law. And if you wanted a more in-depth understanding, certainly I would encourage you to go to the Roman study that we have where you get chapter after chapter of this, which is what you really need to understand it in depth. But the the simple points, the simple outline is, is very easy to understand. We are guilty. You can't undo the past by doing good things in the future. You must in some way, be forgiven for all of that by having the penalty paid on your behalf. And that's what Christ achieved on the cross. By faith in his work, we are justified. We are acquitted. Paul says that even though he and the other apostles were Jews, they did not rest on the works of the law to save them. They knew they needed Christ, so they rested in their faith. They did not rest in their works. So here's his point. If a Jew recognizes this, a man born under the law, a man already working the law before he was made to believe, then how much more so should a Gentile realize this truth, him having never been under the law or even made aware of it? Why would the one who's had it give it up? And yet we tell the one who's never been under it that they need to go find it. Next, Paul points out a contradiction between the Judaizers and the true gospel. In verse 17, Paul asks, If setting aside the law is a sin, which is what the Judaizers were teaching, well, what does that say about Christ when his gospel is a thing that is encouraging you and I to sin by setting aside the law. 
The gospel says we cannot be justified by law. We must seek justification another way. That is through faith. The Judaizers said you cannot set aside the law because that's what promotes people to become pleasing to God. So one of those is false. One of those is true. If the Judaizers are true, then we would be saying Christ is a minister of sin. He's out promoting sin by his message. Paul says, may it never be. Paul says that to turn back to living under the law after receiving justification from Christ is sin. To turn back to living under the law or an attempt to living under the law, messianic or otherwise, after having understood justification by faith alone in Christ is sin. That behavior is sinful because of the reason Peter's behavior was sinful. It confuses the testimony of the gospel. It causes others who are in the faith or who are babes in Christ to not understand the fundamental truths of grace through faith. To suggest that certain works are required, even in the sense of sanctification, does tremendous damage to the doctrine of Christology. You are, in effect, by your behavior, preaching a false gospel, even as your words may declare otherwise. That's what Peter was doing. The Bible teaches that Christ freed us from the law by fulfilling it, by accomplishing it on our behalf. So when one of his disciples, who has accepted that gospel, returns to a life living under that old covenant of law, they are denying an essential element of Christology. That is, that we've been freed from it. There is liberty to allow men and women to practice law, and I believe that is true to a degree, but the devil's in the details. Someone who lives a life following the law as much as they possibly can every day, it starts to beg a big question about their Christology. And it certainly clouds the meaning of what the gospel has for others who follow or watch them. And I think I can say on the authority of what Paul said to Peter, that that behavior is sinful taken to that level, taken to that extreme. For it changes the gospel, at least in effect, if not in your words. Paul could live and did live apart from the law because he knew he had died to the law, he says. He says that through the law, he died to the law. He means that the law itself provided Paul's escape from the law. The law required a death for sin, which Jesus paid for Paul and for all of us. Once the payment for death has been made, we are no longer under that law. It no longer has jurisdiction over us. The price has been paid. The case is closed. The judge is done with the trial. It's done. So if the penalty has been paid, then the law's requirements have been fulfilled. Now we move on under a new law, under new jurisdiction. Paul understood that. He says, through the law's own requirements for a death, Jesus, in his death, paying that price, the law became my instrument to free me from the law. Paul says that he was crucified in Christ, which means, spiritually speaking, Paul's old self was put to death with Christ on the cross from God's point of view. When the father was putting his son to death on the cross, he saw Christ standing in the place of all those who would believe. Christ was Paul's representative and your representative and my representative in that moment. The father, therefore, is willing to consider Jesus's death in Paul's place or in your place or in my place on behalf of our faith in that sacrifice, as a result, because of our faith in that sacrifice. Likewise, Paul says the life he now leads is one guided by Christ, living in him by his spirit. So Paul says he is now free to live for God. The liberty we enjoy in Christ is, first and foremost, 
a freedom to serve God unconstrained by tradition, unconstrained by custom, unconstrained by legal restrictions. Literally, nothing stands in our way. Not food, not a day of the week, not a festival, not any association. We are free to serve him, not in sin, but in joy. And to do so without restraint. Whereas the Jew could not do that. Even under their own law. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Do not let someone defraud you of your prize. And the prize he's speaking about is liberty. And the defrauding of it means someone coming in in a dishonest way, convincing you you have to give up something you've been given by God as a prize. That is what Christ won for you on the cross, which is liberty now to serve in joy. Paul sums up by saying those preaching a return to the law are advocating that the grace of God is void and ineffective. Because if after receiving the grace of God in Christ, we still must keep the law, then of what worth was God's grace? Works were always there, right? The law was always there. Works were always something men believed they could do for God. So of what benefit was God's grace added on top if works are still required? You had them in the beginning, you still have them, then what did grace add to the equation? If there were even one other way to become righteous, then it stands to reason the Father would have pointed us in that direction. He certainly wouldn't have put his only son to death needlessly, Paul says. So as the chapter ends, Paul has defended his apostolic authority and his authority to preach his gospel. He has defended that the content of his gospel matches the content of what the Jewish apostles were preaching. He demonstrated that his authority was equal to any other apostle, including Peter. And lastly, he demonstrated that his teaching is consistent with logic and doctrine as it's been delivered by Christ. Meanwhile, those who oppose him were teaching without apostolic authority because they weren't the apostles. They were teaching a gospel that contradicted the one Paul received from Christ personally. They contradicted Peter, their favorite apostle. They contradicted logic. They contradicted doctrine. And now, with that, Paul's ready to address the Galatians themselves on their willingness to quickly get sucked in by this false teaching. And he has an even harder message for them than the one he's delivered so far. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Father, for the finishing work of Christ. How much we take for granted, Father, the freedom we have, that we are not under the yoke that our forefathers in spirit have, have had to bear in the nation of Israel. But, Father, we are living in the liberty you've given us because of your son's work to win that prize for us. Father, don't let us be defrauded of that. Don't let anyone come and convince us that we should hand back even one moment of our liberty. Father, let us give it back when it serves the better purposes of the, of the gospel. Let us be willing to give up our liberty to, to help a brother or a sister who might be injured by it. But, but never let it be taken from us, Father. And I ask, Father, that what we know about the gospel wouldn't stay in our hearts. It would come out of our mouths and it would be reflected in our lives. And we would share the, the simple and powerful truth of salvation by grace through faith. And that you would let us have that opportunity to convince others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.